What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is moulded, say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. For her whom was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have all been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray as we begin. Paul says in the first chapter of Romans that he writes this letter to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of God's name among all the nations. Oh Lord God, as we look at your word this evening, this letter to the Romans, which we found so rich and yet so challenging, we ask that you would work in us this evening to bring about that obedience of faith, that we would know who you are, know what you have asked us to do, and obey, so that your name may be glorified in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. So said John Stuart Mill, the great English philosopher of the 1800s. Some people call him the founding father of modern Western liberalism. Over himself, over his own body and mind, 
the individual is sovereign. He's asserting the autonomy of the individual over uh, his own life. Perhaps more well known is the idea, the same idea, but we get it in a in poetic form in the famous poem Invictus uh, by William Ernest Henley. This was written in 1875, and Henley had an operation to save his leg in, in Edinburgh Infirmary, in fact. And while he was recovering there, he wrote these words. It matters not how straight the gates, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It matters not how straight the gate is a quote from Matthew chapter 7 from the King James Bible, where Jesus spoke of the narrow gate that leads to life. So here's the thought. It, it doesn't matter that I take the road that God says I should take, nor how many sins are charged to my account, how charged the punishments, uh, with punishments the scroll. Do you see? It's, it's defiant verse to God. It doesn't matter what God says. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. When we hear those words, isn't there some thought in our hearts that says, yes, I'm the one in charge. I determine my own destiny. No one else has the right to govern the trajectory of my life. Not even God's. See, Mill and Henley and those who shared their philosophy in the 1800s, they were very influential, weren't they? Because that is the spirit of our age, self-determination. We've thrown off what we perceive to be the shackles of an all-powerful God who rules all things, and we defiantly cry, I am sovereign over myself. I am the captain of my soul. And it's perhaps because of that and the way that those ideas have infiltrated our worldview that we find Romans chapter 9 so difficult. The absolute sovereignty of God over the fate of all humanity couldn't be more challenging to a people who believe that they decide their own destiny by sheer willpower and efforts. We began this thought last week. Look at Romans 9, verse 15. There Paul recounts what God says to Moses about who he chooses to save. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, says Paul, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or even more shocking to us, verse 17 and 18, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. <clears throat> See, we say, I'm the captain of my soul. I should be treated well because of my decisions and my efforts. Because of my efforts... God owes me. But God says, no, you aren't captain. God is in charge. He is sovereign. He's free to act as he pleases. 
and your place in God's people is down to his unconditional election. It doesn't depend on you, only on his sovereign will. He's free to choose whom he saves by his mercy, and he's free to choose whom he hardens according to his righteous decree. God's not bound to act a certain way because of us and the decisions that we make. He's free to show mercy, free to harden as he sees fit. He's God, and so he can do as he pleases. That's what we saw last time. And we find this doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty so difficult to take. Now, Paul knows that we will find this hard. That attitude uh, of these, those two men I mentioned earlier uh, is not a particularly new one, although uh, it has new form, I think, in uh, our age. Paul knows that there'll be questions that people are asking in their hearts. And particularly, as he mentions the hardening of Pharaoh, but how God hardens Pharaoh's heart, a question will arise that he mentions in verse 19. And before we look at the question, just, just think about this for a moment. We've seen in Luke's Gospel, those of you who've been listening in on Sunday mornings, that there are a couple of different ways to ask a question. So you remember Zechariah and Mary, they ask almost exactly the same question of the angel Gabriel. How will the child be born? Zechariah about his son, Mary about hers. We can ask like Mary does, who asks about the virgin birth and how it's possible. It's a good way to ask the question. It comes with the attitude, Lord, I don't understand. Please will you help me? That's a good way to ask a question, and the Bible encourages us to ask questions like that. Mary gets a positive answer. But we can also ask like Zechariah when he hears about the miraculous birth of his son to Elizabeth. He asks full of doubt and scepticism. His attitude is, no way, God. That can't be right. In Romans 9, uh, 9 verse 19, we have a question that people ask. How is it asked, do you think? Have a look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find faults? For who can resist his will? How is that asked? What tone is that asked? What attitude lies behind that question? Well, I'm going to suggest that it's asked defiantly, with a sense of accusation towards God and his goodness, his righteousness. When people hear about God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, not in response to Pharaoh's sin, but because of God's sovereign will to do so, they often cry foul. How can God hold Pharaoh accountable for his sin when God sovereignly hardens his heart? See, though it's a question, it's also an objection. God, you aren't being fair. It comes from a heart that believes it should have the right to self-determination that I, not God, should have the final say on my life. I think that's important to grasp the motivation for the question being one of defiant accusation because that explains the response that we now get from Paul 
which puts us firmly back in our place. Verse 20 to 21, a big warning. We are in no position to question God on his purposes. Imagine a master potter in his workshop. He conceives in his mind what he needs to make for his business to flourish. He draws out his plans for his pieces, designing all things with a keen eye, working out exactly how each will be made, just the way that he wants them. And then he grasps in his hand the clay that he needs to make the items, and he takes a part of it and he begins to shape it on the wheel, exactly as he has drawn out in his plan. But then as he finishes his work, the newly formed clay shouts out to him, Oi! It's from South London, this uh, bit of clay. Oi, mate! What do you think you're doing? I'm not supposed to look like this. I'm not a bucket. I'm a vase. I don't carry the filth. My home's not in the shed. I'm to be put on display for all to see. That's what I deserve, not this. You've got it wrong. Quite rightly, we'd think that was ridiculous. A lump of clay cannot possibly understand its maker's purposes. It's not in a position to comment on the rights and wrongs of why it's been made the way it has. The potter can choose to make things to serve his purposes as he sees fit. And some things will be used for ugly tasks and some things will be used for beautiful ones. Paul says, verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? Paul's point in this is to show just how foolish it is to criticise God's wisdom and his justice and his righteousness as he uses his sovereignty to elect or to harden whom he pleases. It's foolish. We're just clay compared to the potter. Now the implication of this idea, I think, is this. If we knew what God knew, and if we were as good as God is, as powerful as God is, then we would make exactly the same choices God makes. If we were like God, we would sovereignly elect or harden and justly judge human beings without contradiction. But the problem we have is we aren't God. We aren't all-knowing. We aren't all-powerful. And we definitely aren't all-good. Not even close. And so we are fools if we think we could do things better than him. We're in no position to question God on his purposes. But don't think that because Paul hasn't answered the question yet, 
that there is no answer. There is. But the answer Paul gives us is not really what we would expect him to give us. Now, Paul could appeal to the evidence of human evil here to answer this question. He could say, well, have a look at Exodus. Pharaoh, several times we're told, hardens his own heart towards God. Pharaoh's own will is active in rejecting God. Therefore, though God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not equal and opposite, they're not of equal weight, we can see that the Bible teaches that both are true. That though the sovereignty of God is ultimate and the human responsibility is subordinate to that, humans are held responsible for their choices and, and for their sin. Therefore, we're all justly punished. Paul could say that. He's already said that, in fact, in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20, this is what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, they actively suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And then we would read three times that God judges sinful humanity by handing them over, giving them over to their sinful desires. That is, that he withdraws his hand of restraint on their sin and lets them have what they want to their own destruction. Paul's already explained in Romans that judgment's fully deserved, that we knew enough about God but suppressed that truth, and so we are culpable. And we might expect Paul to say that again here. That would be an answer that we could give to that question from uh, the letter to the Romans. But it's not what Paul says here, is it? Why not? See, that may seem to us to be the easier answer. So why doesn't Paul say that here? Paul wants to keep our minds on the sovereignty of God. God's right to exercise his sovereign choice in election and especially in reprobation. That's the term that we use for this sovereign sovereign hardening of some. And here we get, in, this, in these few verses, verse 22 and 23, a deeper answer, perhaps even the deepest answer of the Scriptures, as to why God is right to exercise his sovereign choice to harden some. And this is the answer. For in doing so, he shows his full glory to those he will have mercy upon. That's 22 and 23. It's a deep answer. His actions show his full glory to those he will have mercy upon. Now we need to look closely at verse 22 to 23 to see this. We're going to look at this sort of step by step. Let me read the verses again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now with the Exodus story in mind uh, as a case study, a very similar language to uh, the verse before which spoke about Pharaoh, I think he has that in mind here. What was God doing as he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, three things. First of all, he was revealing his wrath against sin. It's in verse 22, desiring to show his wrath. See, we know the extent to which God is angry at sin, not because there was one plague, but because there were ten. See, God could have wiped them off the map straight away, He'd have the right to do so, but he, in his sovereignty, permitted more sin. That is, he removed his hand of restraint on Pharaoh's heart. He gave Pharaoh over to his sinful desires so that God could more clearly reveal the extent of his anger against sin. God's hardening of Pharaoh revealed the full extent of his glory, the glory of his holiness, in particular the fierceness of his righteous wrath. That's the first thing, he reveals his wrath. Secondly, he's making known his power. That's in verse 22 as well. The ten plagues showed one after the other that God was greater than Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, or any man for that matter. It showed that he was greater than the might of Egypt or any nation. And it showed that he was greater than the gods of Egypt or any gods or evil powers. God hardened Pharaoh so that he could systematically show his supreme power over these things. It revealed the awesome might of God's glory over all earthly powers. That's the second thing. First, it revealed his wrath. Secondly, it revealed his power. And those two take us into the third thing, verse 23. This is where we, we, we end up. All of that was done for who? Who does verse 23 say that his wrath and power were revealed for? Well, not for those prepared for destruction, but in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. I'll just give you a little illustration to try and help us think about this. Think back to a couple of weekends ago. Didn't we rejoice when the sunshine came? And wasn't the rejoicing all the better because it came after a few weeks of cold and snow and stormy winter? The sunshine seemed far more glorious to us against the backdrop of the dark winter. And so too, we delight in the sunshine of the mercy of God all the more for what we saw back then of what it would be like to be under the storm of his awesome judgment. 
In other words, we who've been shown mercy by God would not know the full extent of God's mercy, of his glory, of his character, had he not acted in this way in the Exodus. In particular, we wouldn't know how much he hates sin and how awesomely powerful he is in his judgment. And we would in turn have no idea just how much mercy we as rebellious sinners have received. Had we not looked upon the Passover, we would not have grasped the fierceness of God's wrath that fell on Jesus Christ, nor would we grasp the full glory of the rescue we have received in Christ. His hardening of Pharaoh leads us to say, that terrible judgment is what I deserve and to cry out to him for mercy we're just lumps of clay we can't possibly understand God's purposes but we're not in a position to question his judgments he does all things according to his righteousness to his sovereign will in order that he might show mercy to all those he has set his love upon. And that's just what he's done for us. Verse 24, for even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As we come into these last few verses, just notice that that last sentence, verse 24, is a big turning point in chapters 9 to 11. So up to now, Paul's been discussing God's promises and mercy to Israel. He's been calling some of, uh, his, sorry, God's calling of some Jewish people uh, to faith in Christ. That's what he's been talking about. But now the people of God, those whom he has called, who've received his mercy, are not Jews only, but Gentiles too. See, not all Israel is true Israel. But now Paul adds that some Gentiles are true Israel. Now, this is where my thinking has changed and where that last point on the handout is. um, I want you to cross it out and, and add a different point instead. It's not that I don't think it makes that point. It does make that point, but I don't think it's the major one here. So cross out the, the thing that's on there. Here's the point for these last few verses. God's saving plan is not shrinking down, it's getting bigger. God's saving plan is not shrinking down, it's getting bigger. See, to conclude this this section, to begin the next one, Paul now wants to show us that God has always had a plan and that that plan is not to become ever more restrictive on who receives God's mercy but in fact, ever more expansive. God's faithful to his promises. He's consistently acting throughout history in line with his sovereign will. And he has now freely, of his own choice, extended his mercy through Christ to Jew and Gentile alike. In the past, in in the Old Testament, the majority of the recipients of God's mercy were Jewish. Jewish. 
and there are a handful of Gentiles kind of thrown in. But Paul now takes us back to the Old Testament once more, to places that we may well have missed, where God spoke of the new people that he was forging through his mercy. And here he shows us to expect things to be reversed, that God's plan is far bigger and far wide, more wide-reaching than we ever would have thought. Verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Who's that? Well, Paul's speaking of the Gentiles here. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. The Gentiles will receive God's love. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The Gentiles will receive his promise of adoption. And that's a big shock. Because in Hosea's day, that was a point in history where the Gentile empires of Assyria and Babylon were the enemies of Israel. They were on the verge of wiping them out, just like Pharaoh wanted to do. And yet God, God says there, will come a day when many of those Gentiles will inherit the promises of God and receive his mercy. God revealed that as his plan through Hosea. Some of Ishmael's descendants, some of Esau's descendants, even some of Pharaoh's descendants will be included. Such is the astonishing, merciful, saving plan of the sovereign God. And then finally Paul turns to Isaiah. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. See, for all that the Gentiles opposed God, and they did in the Old Testament, as you read through the story, it becomes clear that the biggest enemy of God in the Old Testament is sadly the people of God, the nation of Israel itself. Here, God says that proportionately, the present balance, as Paul writes in his day, is that there are few Jews in the people of God, a remnant. And catch that last note, even that is a result of mercy. It would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, completely wiped out had it not been for the Lord of hosts. Judgment on all would have been judgment, uh, justice on the house of Israel, but instead a remnant receives mercy. That verse explains the present situation of Paul's day. It explains how he sees things in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9, what's going on with his people. Yet even that too is not the end of the story. In the next chapters, we'll see that the great saving plan of God, his plan of mercy, is such that his people is not shrinking down to a few, but expanding, getting bigger. To the Gentiles, yes, but perhaps even to include Jewish people also. 
That's for chapters 10 and 11. As we draw to a close, what have we seen? That God is sovereign over all of history. That he's working in ways that we, as lumps of clay, cannot possibly understand and that we are in no position to question him. But if we will trust him, we will see that in his mercy, his plan will come to pass, and that by his righteous actions, he will make an ever-expanding new people for himself from all the nations of the earth. And that will reveal really reveal his true glory. More of that in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think of these things, uh, we know that we need to humble ourselves before your word. That's what your word says here about us is true that we are just lumps of clay compared to you, the master potter, that we have no right to question you. And Lord, we confess that that has been our attitude, to think that you are wrong, not just in this area, but in many areas, to think that you are wrong and that we could do a better job. Lord God, we are sorry for our attitude and we humble ourselves before you And we thank you that in your grace and mercy we have received salvation. And not only us, but that salvation is growing, expanding out into the world. Help us as we wrestle with these things, we pray. Keep us thinking about them, talking about them with each other. Lord, would you continue to give us a vision of who you really are, that we may bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.